In Arabian Nights, there was a, a fascinating event. A, a powerful sultan discovers the infidelity of his wife. In a fit of rage, he orders her immediate execution. But the blood of his wife does not satiate his hunger for vengeance. So by and by, he formulates a plan. Each night, he will marry a new woman. On that night, he will enjoy her pleasures. And then on the following morning, he will have the new bride executed. Only to begin again that evening. Day in and day out, the weddings continued and the deaths followed. There was one fascinating woman. She hurt Zadihi, who had to marry the sultan but knew the history. Following the wedding, she enters into his tent and begins to tell him a story. A story so captivating that the sultan is drawn in by it. But a story that purposefully falls short of its conclusion. Surely in our Netflix and Hulu generation, we know well the... To be continued. These were the words of Shahir Sadihi. The Sultan can't kill her because he must know how the story ends. The next night, he, she tells the conclusion of the story, which also functions as the beginning of another story that is equally tantalizing. Each morning, the intrigues of the unfinished story formed the night before forces him to extend her life. She tells her story 1,001 nights until he finally relents and lets her live. A well-told story will captivate your soul. This week I was pondering the question, who is the author of story? In the beginning, God. God himself is the ultimate storyteller. It's the means he chose to reveal himself to mankind. You can memorize the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Or you could simply read the story of David and Bathsheba. The command in precept form now packs a punch when given in story form. You can tell your children that God regards lying to be a sin. Or you can simply read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which will stick. God designed stories to lubricate the truth. We have stories because God wanted to transfer information from his mind into ours. Augustine said, if the hearts need teaching, do it through story. God is transfer transferring information to you about himself, but not in the way that he does through Romans or Ephesians. Rather, he decides to do it through story. So he clothes himself in a story we call Ruth. And Ruth is a brilliant work of theological art. It's so beautiful, it, it reads like a, like a novel, but it's not fiction. Even as I am before you, I fear doing this story injustice. I feel like a gorilla holding an, holding an elegant, dainty flower. I'm clumsy and ugly and it's graceful and precious. It's the most beautiful short story in the history of man. It has all the elements of an instant classic. A depressed and angry stepmother. A beautiful but poor damsel in distress. And a wealthy prince to save the day. In fact, just the opening words of verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Sound a lot like once upon a time. Or long, long ago, or in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Ruth 
reads like a little fairy tale in some ways, except that its writer takes significant pains to ground it in Israel's history. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, this is not merely a date stamp like four score and seven years ago. Rather, it is a theological description of the character of the times. If you've ever read a fairy tale to your children, then you know that before the first page is turned, before the hero shows up, the story becomes dark and troubled. Storm clouds gather overhead. In Ruth, the same storyline emerges. We barely get past the first few words before the clouds begin to gather. See, the reader knows well the dark and bloody days of the judges. All we have to do is look across the page at the first verse, at the last verse of the book of Judges, to find what Dan read to us earlier that gives a commentary of the day. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. The times of Judges was a 400-year period after Israel entered the promised land under Joshua and before there were any kings in Israel, before Saul, before David, before Solomon, and this time period was total pandemonium. Here's, here's the breakdown. Israel lay in a sin cycle. Notice the graphic provided. Notice the continual cycle. Uh, their walk with God would be going well. And then suddenly they would defect. They would enter into idolatry, horrible sin. God would judge them by letting a foreign power come into their land and enslave them. They would grieve under the enslavement call out to God for rescue, they would repent, and God would raise up a judge among his people to deliver them. And don't think our judges. Don't think this is Judge Judy. This isn't. These men were beasts. Think Jack Bauer, Nicolas Cage, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible type. Local military heroes. Judges were not national but local, not political but military. Othniel was the first. Samson was the last. Six judges in all lead us on an epic adventure against the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Philistines. As the judges unfold, they decrease in character and respectfulness. The judges go from pretty good to okay to bad to even worse. You should read Judges this month as we work through the book of Ruth. The depravity of man is on full display in horrible ways. It's the lowest point in Israel's history. Violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, tribal civil war, national disgrace. I can prove that by just looking at the average front page news of that day. An unbelievable horror story of a Levite who took a mistress from none other than the little town of Bethlehem. They traveled to Ephraim where she was gang raped and killed by Israelites. See, every cycle seems to get worse, like a downward spiral. However, the repentance part is missing at the end of the book. The book ends in total moral chaos, as Israel, as bad if not worse than the Canaanites that they had driven out. And following all of that madness, we have Ruth. In fact, Ruth goes on in the middle of all of that wickedness. The times of the judges form the backdrop of the Ruth story. One author wrote that the book of Ruth is a pearl in the pig pen of Judges. One of the, 
One of the pleasant surprises for me about moving to the country was meeting farmers. I could talk to farmers for, for hours. They view life differently. They view success differently. They view GMOs differently, might I say correctly. There's just something about learning the simplicity of farm life from a farmer. We have quite a few people in our church who own horses. We had a guy over to our house this week, special forces, single guy, uh, just trusted Christ as a Savior, he will be baptized in uh, a couple of weeks. He said, I never imagined I would be the guy with a horse. He just bought a horse. You can learn from horses. You can learn from cattle. One family in our church, they have some beef cattle. And this week, we, we talked about how cows will have a pasture full of green grass. But it's, it's not unusual to see one of those cows with his head through the fence trying to get a mouthful of grass on the other side, which is not nearly as green. This reminds me of the myth of greener grass. There is this belief that somewhere else... Life is better, easier, more fulfilling. It can't be in the middle of your own pasture. The grass looks a lot greener in a different house, with a higher paycheck, in a different job, at a different school, in a different neighborhood, driving a different car, next to a different spouse, belonging to a different family. The grass is greener everywhere but here. Stephen Davey says we cannot ignore the fact that some situations are harder than others and that sometimes we need to make some changes. But the problem comes when we decide that surely God would not purposefully make life difficult or uncomfortable or challenging. That he wants everyone to be happy. Greener grass must be a proof of God's leading. Irma Bombeck had a funny way of summing up this myth when she entitled one of her books, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. It looks promising and rewarding, but we have no idea what's underneath. If you're looking for greener grass, Satan is a master fertilizer. It was during the difficult days of judges when one man, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, started to feel unsatisfied with his pasture. Notice verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. In the ancient world, death by starvation was an all too real possibility. So I can see why this man looked for greener grass. This famine had lasted for years. Compound this man's crisis with living in fear of another attack from the Canaanites or the Midianites or some other ites. He couldn't take peeking out his window to find all of his cattle dead again. His horse and buggy stolen again. Pile on to this the fact that the investment potential in the dry farmland of Bethlehem had never looked bleaker. The hayloft is empty. This, this is a good man. This is a loving man. This is a godly man. His name's Elimelech. Elimelech asks his wife, whose name means sweet or sweetie. He says, sweetie pie, what's for dinner? She opens up the cupboards and there's nothing there but dust. See, the ancient town of Bethlehem had a nickname. Or better, a meaning behind the name. 
Because the town had historically been full of wheat, barley, olives, almonds, grapes. It was the breadbasket of Judah. So Bethlehem meant house of bread. How ironic that the house of bread failed to feed his family. The original audience would have immediately caught the contradiction in terms, the pun, there is no bread in the house of bread. That's like talking about the increase in hate crimes in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Or the rise of demonic activity in Los Angeles, the city of angels. Panera bread has run out of bread. God's people are starving at Chick-fil-A. How can God's people be starving in God's house? Popeyes, understandable. Chick-fil-A. See, it created an obvious twist in the story. We find in verse 2 that Elimelech and his family were Ephrathites. Ephrathites were members of a clan that, as one author said, was the first family of Bethlehem. They were the aristocracy of the town of Bethlehem. They had a strong heritage, most popular name in the town. They lived in the largest house. They had streets named after them. They were a staple family, and now nothing. This is simply to underscore the riches to rag, rags crisis that's hitting the family. The, the, these are the Waltons, now hungry and homeless. The Rockefellers, now living as immigrants. Elimelech tells his wife that he's going for a walk. Pushes away from the table. He stands. As he approaches the door, his stomach is growling. He leaves. He climbs the ridge of hills on the edge of Bethlehem. And from there, he can see the land of Moab. From the ridge, he looks back and sees the dry grass, the brown parched fields of Bethlehem. And then he looks forward. And he sees less than 50 miles away, just on the other side of the Dead Sea, the green fields of Moab. He knows if he leaves, they will be refugees. They will have to assimilate to the culture. The boys grow up speaking the Moabite language. But at least they could survive. And you, living in the 21st century, you may think, the solution looks simple. Feed your kids. Pack up and leave the Dust Bowl for the lush green golf course across the Dead Sea. But here's the problem. It's actually twofold. First, this isn't a good place to raise your family. Moab was known for several reasons and none of them were good. Moab was the perennial enemy of Israel. The nation was constantly hostile to the people of God and, and to God himself. For 18 years they oppressed Israel during the times of the judges. You can read about that in Judges chapter 3. The family, however, would be safe in Moab under the resident alien laws. But the culture, the culture was as anti-God as it could possibly be. Moab was actually formed when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his older, oldest daughter. Lot had a lot of problems. Horrific family dynamics. The incest between a father and a daughter produced Moab. Moabites worshipped the god Chemish, and the worship of this god was grotesque, even to the point of offering sacrifices. You find that in 1 Kings 11, 2 Kings 3, just spelled out horrifically. However, Elimelech didn't see any of that. He only saw green 
grass. He wore rose-colored glasses or grass-colored glasses. Davy pointed out that the Lord called Moab in, in Psalm 60 verse 8 a wash pot. This was a, a pot used to wash dirty feet. It would be akin to calling Moab a dumpster where things are kept that you want to throw away. This region is a wastebasket. So this Jewish family in, Christ, in a crisis of faith, they're considering leaving the house of bread and moving to a trash can. Moving from the bread basket to the landfill. And if he moves, he's playing with fire. Because God has called his people to be separate from the surrounding lands. See, this just proves that Satan is a master at making trashy situations seem appealing. It is a gift. It is a gift when someone comes up to you and they rip those rose-colored glasses off of your face and they tell you that you're not seeing things properly. A gift Elimelech did not have or at least did not heed. This is a horrible place to raise your family. Secondly, if Elimelech left... He's running from the judgment of God. And let me, let me unpack this. If he leaves, he's leaving the one piece of land in the entire universe that God has promised to bless. He's leaving the temple of God. He's knowingly forfeiting participation in the assembly of the Lord. He's taking his kids away from the community of faith. One commentator pointed out that Elimelech's choices were not equal choices theologically speaking, in the way that a choice of a city in which to live might be for us. We can perhaps serve the Lord equally well in Austin or Boston, in Indianapolis or Minneapolis, in Toronto or Tampa. However, God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live. God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem. He therefore had no business leaving there to go anywhere. Elimelech's name should have given him pause. My God is king. It appears that God was not more king in Elimelech's heart than it was in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 clearly taught that God would curse his covenant people with many judgments, but one of them was famine. And he would do that if they disobeyed him and served other gods. So this current famine was God's judgment on Israel, on Bethlehem, on the house of bread. Humanly speaking, there's no rain, there's no food, but theologically speaking, it's probably judgment. When the rains are withheld, it is the hard hand of God. His design was not for the people to leave the house of bread, but to repent and obey him. And he would again fill their houses with bread. Elimelech chose to do what was best in his own eyes instead of following in the path of repentance and faith, trusting God to provide for his needs. So he leaves the rich. He goes back home. He opens the door and he says, Sweetie pie, pack your things. We're moving to greener pastures. He showed a lack of faith and a lack of wisdom. For it is impossible to run from the discipline of the Lord. In defining moments of life, 
What factors weigh most heavily in our decisions are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security. Perhaps he thought to himself, you know, I'm not going to totally leave God. I'm not going to totally leave God's land. Uh, We're still going to do our family worship together. Uh, I'm only going to be gone for a short period of time. But I want you to notice the progression. Notice in verse 1 the word sojourn. And then in verse 2 the word remained. Remained. And then in verse 4, lived. Sojourn. So they started out sojourning. They, they were not going to stay. They're, they're going to be visitors, staying there temporarily. Then it says in verse 2, they remained. Now Moab feels comfortable. The culture isn't as bad as they first perceived. And then in verse 4, they lived. The far, far country became home. Learn from Elimelech. The danger of greener grass is that it can turn into quicksand. What seems like a temporary compromise, no big deal, just a quick trip, just a quick phone call, just one bet, just one sip, just one personal expense charged to the company account, just one little lie, just one purchase, just one visit to the website, and the greener grass grows into a wilderness, and you can barely see daylight. The story continues, and it's actually going really well for them. They leave, move to Moab. The kids are making excellent grades in school. The cupboards are now filled with food. So hear me. Life is often good away from the presence of God. But you have more than a life. You have an eternity. Naomi and Elimelech's sons, they make their brief curtain call here in the text. Their names are Malon and Kilion or Malon and Chilion. They, they have rhyming names, which means they could be twins or simply ha- they have a mother like some of you who wanted their children's names to begin with the same letter or you know, end in a rhyme. We have a family here. They have four or five kids. They all start with the same letter, and they're all Bible names. My wife's name's Sarah. Her sister's name Leah. And um, we went to Bible college. There were like 500 Sarahs, 300 Leahs. This is a popular thing to do. Uh, my sister-in-law used to teach... Uh, two brothers in school. They were named Orangelo and Lamangelo. They rhymed. They also spelled orange jello and lemon jello. Orangelo and Lamangelo. Now, I, I don't know, but maybe Naomi had a, a little paperback book with 1,001 names for boys that rhyme. Uh, all these names have meaning. It's not like today where we pick a name just simply because how it sounds coming off the lips. They had meaning. Choosing names meant something in the ancient world. Malon, his name means sickling. So we know a little bit about this boy from the very beginning. He was a sick boy. Kilion, his name means puny. So he was the runt. Uh, Imagine there, I mean, just imagine this for you and your brother. What's your name? Sickling and puny. Thanks, Mom. For the rest of my life. I feel, I feel like now I should confess to you that uh, my mother had two sons. And uh, she named them both girl names. My, my brother's name is Jamie. And then my name is none of your business. <laughs> but my, my mom named me before my dad arrived at the hospital. My history CF prof in college, he said, what do you think about your name? I said, I hate my name. He quipped, well, why don't you change it? So I did, freshman year. I go by another name. That's why I go by Kyle. I'm living under assumed identity. It helps with embarrassment and also my 
criminal record. <laughs> my, uh, my family and my wife's family, they still call me by my given name because they just, you know, are horrible people. Just rub it in as much as possible. And then they try to do it really loud when they visit church here. Um, it's, it's possible that these names were given because they were poor in health. Puny and sickling would make sense being born in a famine. And while we're at it, verse 4 gives us the names of the future wives of these sons. One was named Orpah, which means obstinate or literally strong neck or stiff necked. She was kind of this mouthy talk show host that you would see you know, on TV. Um, you know, we don't have any Orphas here, of course. Then finally, the name of the second wife was Ruth, whose name means comfort. So we have Mr. Puny marrying Miss Strongneck. Who do you think won the arguments there? <laughs> then we have Mr. Sickling marrying Miss Comfort, comforting him in his sickness. Frankly, Ruth is the only one who really doesn't seem to fit the picture. The narrative quickly shows the first crack in this perfect family picture in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. What decision will a wife make while the husband is gone? It's a fascinating question. One that I've learned is hard to predict. What will Sweetie Pie do when the husband is gone in death? Gone on deployment? Gone on a business trip? Sadly, Naomi makes the decision to stay in the God-forsaken, God-cursed foreign land. And I think this reveals something about her heart. Maybe the move to Moab wasn't the husband's idea alone after all. Maybe she played him like a fiddle to arrive at her wanted destination. Maybe there's more than one prodigal in the store. Elimelech and Naomi wanted to get away from the father's house. But why would the prodigal not return home now? Bethlehem had repented and experienced God's grace. The famine was over. Ian DeGuid said, Sometimes it's easier to bear the pain of continued emptiness than to confess our pursuit of fullness in the wrong place. This text quickly moves from a funeral to a wedding. Notice verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So for 10 years, everything seemed great. Naomi had her sons to take care of her. She lived in a little spare bedroom in one of their homes. She would frequently drop hints about wanting grandchildren. I can't wait to hear those tiny little footsteps running through this house in the morning. Just dropping hints annoyingly. Yeah. My mother did this to Sarah before we had our children. She wrapped up a baby onesie and gave it to her at Christmas. I'll never forget my wife's face opening that one up. These are good family times. Uh, the, the, the glimmer of hope was soon dashed in verse 5 because the sons die. And so the puzzled readers ask, how and why did they die? There's no explanation. We don't know if it was a heart attack or if they were hit by a camel. There's no medical diagnosis, just the shocking news that everyone around them in Moab 
and certainly shocking news, like headline news to Bethlehem. Maybe it read in the paper, aristocrat family of Bethlehem, moved to Moab, husband dead, 10 years later, son's dead, Naomi left alone, choosing to stay in evil Moab. If this were a movie, the cameraman would pull back the lens to find Naomi's hard face standing at the graves of her husband and now two sons. She's dressed in black, but not alone. Her two daughter-in-laws are beside her and they are weeping. Naomi felt cursed. God thrust the sword into her heart with the death of her husband and then he twisted it to the right with the death of her son and then to the left with the death of her other son. She's now destitute. There are no government-sponsored welfare programs. There's no people of God obeying the law of God, allowing the widows to glean the edges of the field. Not in God-defying Moab, at least. Her health is declining. Aging widows had no significance in this family-oriented society. And I've really debated and wrestled with what I'm about to say. But I think the death of Naomi's husband and two sons were judgments for having assimilated into the lifestyle and culture of Moab. And I'm not alone. Stephen Davies says most Jewish writers and evangelical writers as well read between the lines and contend that the death of Naomi's husband and sons were divine judgments upon their unbelief. And there's one more person in the, in the chapter who, who believes that, and her name is Naomi. Because she said in the chapter, the hand of the Lord is against me. Now, what I am not saying is that every sickness or every death is a result of God's judgment. What I am not saying is that every sin and every death is a result of God's judgment. What I am saying is that greener grass may lead you to a graveyard. Deciding to pursue greener grass rather than the hard will of God is a fountainhead of grief. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some applications. Two families of applications. I'm trying to make it as confusing as possible. All right? Two families of application. The, the, the first family of application is, is a group of applications for those considering traveling to Moab. Like you, you haven't made the step yet. You haven't made the move. And I don't, know, you know, I don't know what that is you do, but you're looking at the green grass and you're seriously contemplating making the move. You are steps away. You may make it when you leave these doors. So I've got a family of applications for you. Then I have a family of applications for those of you who have already traveled to Moab. Like the green grass caught your eye and you are there. So first, the applications for those considering traveling to Moab. Application number one, don't run from your problems. Things may only get worse. In the most simplistic explanation, the most simplistic explanation, Elimelech was running from his problems. So is there a famine in your land, some dry and parched ground, and it makes you want to bounce? Famine in your job, famine in your church, famine among family members? Don't, don't pick up and run at the first sign of trouble. Ask yourself, what does God's word say? What is God teaching me through this? In times of trouble, we need faith. In times of trouble, we need wisdom, which is the ability to see life from God's perspective and act accordingly. Life by its very nature confronts us with problems. 
And when problems stare you in the face, you can basically respond one of three ways. You can face them and work through them. You can ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. Or you can run from them. So when times are tough and days are difficult, rather than run from your problems, run to your God and believe His promises and trust in His plan. Do the opposite of Elimelech. Application number two. One sinful choice can lead you to more sinful choices that draw you further and further, further and further away from God. The road to Moab ended up being the road to death. That reality was not immediately apparent, of course, but then it rarely is. At first, it seemed like Elimelech made a sensible decision. While he ate in Moab, his kinspeople were starving in Bethlehem. And just like the prodigal son, it started out well, but eventually the green grass turned into a pig pen. For at least 10 years, they were out of church. No temple, no community of faith. And you may say that you're a Christian, and you may even bear the title like a Limelech bore, my God is king. But are you living like a Christian? Are you making choices like God is your king? Don't bear his name and then not let him bear on your decision making. You are not sovereign in your life. And let me just throw this out on the table. The reason that greener grass can be so appealing to our hearts is because our hearts are selfish and corrupt and our minds are in need of daily renewal and transformation. We have a wicked heart that's constantly saying, go for the green grass. Application number three. Greener grass may make a lot of sense. But making sense and trusting Christ can be two different things altogether. Greener grass may make wonderful economic sense. You can make more money. But it'd still be a spiritual loss. When you follow God, you can't be the ultimate pragmatist. And I know that's built into our culture. As Americans, we're pragmatic. The ends justify the me. It's all about the bottom line. It's not. Greener grass might make for excellent personal advancement, but at the same time, tragic spiritual digression. Maybe it's a reasonable decision, but it's not a faith decision. So you have to guard yourself from a lack of faith while you wait. Remember that God's not in a hurry. Never has been. And God's work in your life is often slow and painful. So grab hold to his promises. Application number four. When your children feed on that green grass, it can have devastating repercussions. What happened to Elimelech's sons? Well, they married Moabite women. And technically, there was no formal rule against marrying Moabite women like, like there was Canaanite women. But it broke the spirit of the law. See, don't read into this and think like, oh, does this have something to do with interracial marriage? God's not against interracial marriage. He set up boundaries here about marrying outside of Israel because these foreign women would seduce men into worship and false gods. In fact, that principle is still in place today. If you're looking for a spouse, find one devoted to Jesus Christ. That's the principle. Now, we rarely think about the impact of our decisions and how they weigh on us raising a godly family. These sons follow 
and their dad's disobedient footsteps by disobeying God and marrying pagan women. But who are these boys supposed to marry? What, what choices did their parents put in front of them? Now, you're, you're, asking, you're probably asking the question, Kyle, is it a sin to move my family? Away from this church? Yes, absolutely. Yes. No, no. I mean, you understand what I'm saying. Kyle, is this a sin to move my family? No. God wanted Abraham to move, and why? There was a famine, and he told him to leave. The question is, why are you moving? You say, well, you know, I'm going to provide for my family. Are you? You are to provide more than simply food. You are to provide spiritual leadership. So when you move, you have to ask questions like, who will be my wife's spiritual community? Who will my kids be around? Man, I'm talking to you specifically. The spiritual well-being of your family is your responsibility. We're complementarians. This is what we believe. The spiritual well-being of your family is your responsibility. It's okay if the church helps you, but it's your responsibility. It's okay if the school helps, but it's your responsibility. It's okay if a lady's Bible study helps, but it's your responsibility. Do you pray with your wife? Pray with your children. Are you setting the spiritual temperature in your home? See, Elimelech was thinking about feeding his family, but not feeding them spiritually. Take care of your children. Also take care of, of your spouse. Lo love your wife even after you're gone. Are you prepared to take care of her financially? Or are you going to leave her begging like Elimelech did Naomi? There's more than one way to love your wife. You love her in life, and then you love her in death. So when you pass, she's cared for. Rem been reminded by that recently um, among our community. Those who already made the trip to Moab, let's give you some applications, okay? You say, Kyle, man, I am there. I'm in Moab right now. Uh, you know, I, I climbed through the fence, and, and I'm there. Well, here, here's the first application for you. I have 22 applications. I'm just kidding. I only have two, all right? But now that I say 22, two doesn't seem that bad. So that's application number one. Famine in the will of God is better than a feast outside the will of God. Some of you have been, look, we're all a family here. Some of you have been feasting on sin. You know it. God knows it. Everyone knows it. And you now realize that you've made a mistake. You chose to feast outside of the will of God instead of enduring a famine in the will of God. And you wonder if there's a way back. You actually wonder from this text, like, Kyle, am I going to die in Moab? Here's what I can tell you from this story. God has a way of redeeming wasted years and foolish decisions. God has a way of redeeming wasted years and foolish decisions. Just start running home and and I don't want to presume on grace, but watch the Father come running to greet you. In Christ, God is running to you. Application number two. God is still, you need to remember this. God is still sovereign over your senseless decisions. He can redeem them and you for his glory. I love the meaning of Elimelech's name against the backdrop of the story. In the days of the judges, there was no king, 
But Elimelech's name means my God is king. There was a king. And he was reigning. But it's behind the scenes. The best way I know to explain how this story starts and how this story ends is one phrase. The dark shadows of providence. You know, uh, Elimelech wasn't the only person that God sent to Bethlehem. God sent another to the lush, green, fruitful land of Bethlehem and sent him as a baby. But he did not send him to stay in Bethlehem. He would have to leave the greener grass of Bethlehem for a parched and dusty, well-trodden path to Calvary. And on that rugged cross, he made a way for your sins to be forgiven. For your lusting after the green grass to be cleansed. For your sinful decisions to be washed away. He promised to take his chosen ones to a place. To a place that has grass that is so green it will blow your mind. So don't settle for this artificial turf down here. God's going to bring you to an everlasting green garden. Don't accept cheap substitutes. Well, how does the story end? Will the prodigal daughter go back home? How will God redeem this mess and make it a masterpiece? We will discover all of this and more when the curtain rises in our next session together. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.